uncleanliness due to bodily discharges. Why is God so focused on blood loss? There are four kinds of discharges that God's going to talk about. Two for the female, two for the male. One is natural for each one, and one is really unhealthy for each one. So he's going to deal with the healthy and the non-healthy with the guy, um, and the healthy and the unhealthy with the girl. So the whole point here, though, is because one is the semen of the man, and the other one is the period of the girl. Now, that's not sinful. Why in the world would that declare you unclean? The main point that God is trying to communicate here is that loss of blood is loss of life. Even though having a period does not make you a sinner, you're not having a period because God is punishing you, the reality is you're having a period and that's a loss of blood. And that's a loss of life. And if you go too long, then that would be dangerous. And if you're not clean, that can be dangerous for infection. And today in modern day society, yes, it feels so natural and we have so many things that take care of us and clean us, but the reality is if you didn't have all those modern day health products and you were not bathing on a daily basis like we do today, there can be some serious problems with just these natural bodily functions. And so this is what God is going to deal with, is that ultimately a loss of fluid is a loss of life. And anytime there's a loss of life, that's not good. And so that's what God is going to be focusing on here. So he says in chapter 15, verse 1, Anytime a male had any discharge from the flesh, for any reason he was unclean. Now, this is a euphemism for the male genitalia. Okay, so the word flesh can be used of raw meat. It can be used of the meat that you eat, an animal, that kind of stuff. But it's also euphemism for the male genitalia. And you're like, that kind of doesn't make sense. But none of the euphemism in America makes sense either. So that's just what it is when it comes to sex. Our euphemisms make no sense whatsoever. That man has not changed. The point is, is that the point is, if the male had a prolonged unnatural discharge from his male reproductive organ, he was declared unclean. In addition, God says that everything he touched or that the discharge touch becomes unclean. And it must all be quarantined or washed or one of that kind of stuff. Now, what God is talking about here is an unnatural, continuous discharge from the male organ. Most people believe that this is gonorrhea. Now, obviously, God probably, no matter how far through history you go, would be referring to any kind of discharge or fluid or sexually transmitted disease. But in the ancient world, syphilis and gonorrhea were the major ones. Now, kind of an interesting side note was they really only had like a handful of sexually transmitted diseases all throughout the ancient world from the way that they described it. One of the things that God is saying is if you have this kind of discharge, you're not allowed to be in contact with people. Now, today we know that. That's duh. But at the same time, even much as we know that, we've spread a lot of sexually transmitted diseases in America because no matter how much we know, we don't really care. And so, and I don't mean we, (laughs) just overall, it's a big problem. And so you were to considered unclean and anything that you touched and everything that it touched was considered unclean. Now, unlike the skin diseases, you did not have to live outside the camp with this one. 
because this kind of skin disease we know is not contagious in an airborne sense. This is contagious in a physical contact sense. And so God would say that you're not allowed to come in contact with anybody. People do need to know that you're unclean. Even today, if you have a sexually transmitted disease and you don't tell your partner before you sleep with them that you have it, and they get sick and it kills them or affects their life, you could be prosecuted. And so even today, we have very strict rules on not informing people of being unclean before you have contact with them and the sexually transmitted diseases department. And so God's saying the same thing. You don't have to live outside the camp, but you do have to wash yourself on a daily basis, and people have to know that you're unclean in that kind of a sense. And so that's what God dealt with on that one. Now, obviously today, that's duh. We know that, like, that's a serious one. And in some ways it says we might think, oh, it's kind of harsh to live outside the community if you have a skin disease. But we all know very well sexually transmitted diseases are a very, very horrible thing that's highly contagious. And we'd all say amen to that one of not having any contact with anybody. So God is dealing with that. That's the unnatural, unhealthy one. The next one is in verses 16 through 18, where it basically says, if the man has a seminal emission, he was to immediately bathe his whole body, and he was declared unclean until evening. So in this one, we know even today that's not as severe and as scary, but because you don't know what might be in that seminal discharge, because they might have some kind of sickness or disease, and we know that even modern-day leprosy can be communicated. Other diseases, not sexually transmitted, any, a lot of hepatitis C, hepatitis B, um, leprosy, all this are all transmitted through saliva and bodily fluids, even if it's not a sexually transmitted transmit disease. So even a natural one, like a seminal emission, requires you to at least bathe your whole entire body, and then you're not allowed to touch anything until evening. And so that's a much shorter unclean time period and it doesn't require a sacrifice or any of that kind of stuff to be unclean because that would be rather difficult this one you're kind of thinking really you have sex and you're not allowed in the tabernacle until evening like this kind of promotes that whole god's an old fogey let's live in separate beds kind of a thing um of the leave it the beaver days um the reality is like why would god who designed your body to work that way, called it good, said the two shall become one flesh, and told you to be fruitful and multiply, then when you actually do it, punish you and say you can't be in the tabernacle for an entire day. Right? That seems weird. Here's the reality. Sex was a huge part of worship in the ancient world. Every single religion and culture and nation that surrounded the Israelites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the everybody, they worshiped their gods through sex. Their gods, now forgive me, I'm not being graphic just for the sake of graphic. I just want you to understand the world they live in. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand the Canaanite extermination. You don't understand a lot of the laws that got gives you don't understand there's a lot of things you're not going to understand what happens at the end of numbers i mean the reality is i'm not just being graphic for the sake of graphic this is helping you understand a lot of things in the bible so the reality is their gods were fertility gods because the two things that the ancient people wanted more than anything in life was crops and children 
even today, right? Most of what we want is community in some sense, maybe not necessarily through children because we're not as pro-children anymore in America, um, but we definitely want grocery stores and that kind of stuff. So basically extending your life through children and extending your own personal life through food. That was the thing they wanted. Everybody's life revolves around crops or animals. And then everybody wanted children because children was their legacy. It was extra help. It was who took care of you in your old age. It was all those things. Those are all the result of fertility. Seeds in the ground, seeds in, of the man and the woman is all fertility. Because they wanted those things the most, we tend to worship the things that we want the most. And the thing that we want the most, we turn into a god. In the ancient world, they literally turned into a god. And they bowed down and worshipped it. And because they wanted those things, then they worshipped their gods in the thing that they wanted. And so they created what's called holy temple prostitutes. Now, we would think of a prostitute and a pastor or priest being two different things. In the ancient world, they were the same thing. And so your priest and your pastors were sexual prostitutes. There was a prostitute that you would go down the street corner and sleep with because you just wanted to be pleasured. And then there was the holy prostitute, which just sounds so wrong to say that. But that's what they would call it. Totally separate and unique from the culture. And you had sex with it, not for the sake of just pleasure, but the sake of worshiping the gods. They would go into the temple and they would sleep with the priests. And the bigger the sleeping group, the better. And their hope was to literally turn the gods on so that the gods would rain down their seeds down on the earth and you would have children and crops. Now, here's what's really jacked up about this. There are people who do that today, okay? There's orgies that are happening in America today. There's a lot of people who say, that's okay. But most of America would say, that's not right. But in the ancient world, not only did they all do it, but they all declared it righteous. They declared it a worship service. They declared it the greatest thing that you could ever do to connect to the gods. There was no taboo at all. It was all declared great. This is what you have to do to connect to the gods. And anything connecting to the gods is good. So why is God making you unclean after a seminal emission and you're not allowed in the tabernacle? To keep sex and the tabernacle completely separate from each other. If you live in a culture where every single person who lives around you says that sex in the temple with the priests and the gods is not only good, but absolutely necessary for proper worship and blessing. And God's saying, oh, no, it's not. Then he needs to do everything he can to make sure that never, ever, ever gets confused. Does that make sense? For us at this thing, so why would you ever go there in your mind? But for them, they, that's the culture they came out of. And think about it. As they evangelize and they begin to bring more and more people that are non-Israelites in their community who are converting to Yahwehism, that's what they're coming from. And we all know, if a lot of you have become Christians late in your life, you know that rewiring the way that you think about God in a godly way, that takes a long time. 
And so as more and more people are coming into Israel, which they should be, that doesn't mean that God just waves a magic wand and your brain is rewired immediately and all old habits are... I mean, a lot of thinking has to be undone. And he needs to make sure that they know that if they have sex, it's not bad, but they cannot enter the tabernacle so they never, ever, ever confuse the act of sex with the worship of God. And they never connect this to. So does that make sense? This isn't just about God being an old fogey and like making their life difficult because they had sex. This is God making sure that you know that there is never, ever, ever, ever any kind of connection in your brain made between those two things. Because when we get to the numbers, there's going to be an actual guy who will bring a prostitute into the tabernacle and have sex with her right there in front of the entire nation. So this is a real thing that they're dealing with in their culture. And God is making sure that those two things separate. And you need to understand, sometimes we look at these rules and we think, that's just so harsh and narrow-minded. But once you understand the culture, you're like, oh, yes, thank God that he had something like that. Because I would never want that to come into my worship service. Does that make sense? And so that's why he's declared that unclean, even though that's an incredible thing that God has given us for a man and woman to connect to. But as beautiful and as blessing and as one flesh that is, it needs to stay in its proper place. It needs to stay in its proper place. Because we know that when it's taken out of its proper place, welcome to the downfall of a culture. Welcome to the downfall of a culture. And that's what God is mostly protecting them from. Now we come to the woman in verse 19. Now, God began with the unnatural discharge and the natural with the man, but now with the woman, he deals with the, the unnatural, um, or with the natural first and then the unnatural. So when the woman has a blood flow due to menstruation, then she is declared unclean for seven days, and she must bathe during that time. For her, the period lasts longer than the guy. The guy just has an emission and he's done. But for a woman, there's a period, and that lasts more than just one day. So she needs to be cleaning. Now, once again, in a time period where they do not bathe on a regular basis and they don't have um, hygiene products that we now have today um, for absorption, that's really important to be bathing every single day. And then once the period ends, then she needs to continue until the seven-day process is over with just to make sure that all the cleansing is... Is that absolutely necessary on a biological, scientific, medical level to go seven days? Probably not, but seven is the number of completion. And God always rounds over to the nearest seventh. I mean, that's just the way he does things. We round to the nearest tenth. He always goes to the nearest seventh. He's doing it that way. And there might be something that we haven't even discovered yet that seven is an important number. During that time period, God forbids any sexual contact with her. They're not allowed to have sex with each other during that period or anything like that. If they do, God says that they're to be cut off from the community. Now, this is serious. That God says, if you have sex with a woman during her period, you're kicked out of the Abrahamic covenant. That's huge. You're not just declared unclean and removed from the camp for a certain amount of period. You're kicked out of the Abrahamic covenant completely. When the woman is done with her period and at the end of the seven-day washings, she's no longer 
unclean. However, she does not have to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. So the sacrifices are only required if it's unnatural, if there's something wrong with you. Then God goes to the unnatural blood flow, a blood flow that does not stop during a menstruation period. And we see this in the Gospels. The woman that was hemorrhaging of blood had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. So there's something wrong where she never, ever, ever ends her bleeding cycle. In this sense, she's declared unclean, and anything that she touches is unclean. And anyone who touched anything that she touched or anything that she touched is declared unclean. And they're all required to wash themselves and remain unclean until evening. If the discharge stops flowing at the end of a seven-day purification period, she's allowed to go back in, and she's only required to do a sacrifice of a pigeon or a turtle dove. But if the flow never, ever stops, like the woman with 12 years, then she's never allowed to go into the tabernacle or the temple ever during that time period. And she would have to constantly cure her, or um, wash herself. Because we know that that's, that would be dangerous in a society with no bathing and dirt floors and, and, and um, hot desert suns and heat. And all, that's a breeding ground um, for potential hepatitis C and B and all that kind of stuff that could be in their blood in that kind of a sense. You might think, wow, every single time a woman has her period, she has to be declared unclean for seven days. That's like a fourth of her life. <laughs> is like being unclean and not in the temple. And you think, like, wow, God, that's kind of a little harsh. I mean, yeah, I get the seminal emissions one and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like, this is a very reoccurring thing. And it's not just, like, until evening. This is for seven days. And that, that means, like, that's one week out of every month. And that's, like, a fourth of every month of her life is completely declared unclean. That seems a little harsh. But we need to understand that to back then things were different. I didn't know this one. This was actually really interesting when I read this. The way that a woman's menstrual period back then would have been completely different than the way it is today. Now, I don't mean like everything was drastically different. Um, but in this sense, it's, it's this. And I'm just going to read this quote because it's just easier. But as been pointed out, it is probably a fairly recent phenomenon for a woman to suffer a menstrual period once a month between adolescence and menopause. This is not because female psychology has changed, or physiology, sorry, has changed, but because of the different social habits of modern Western society. In ancient Israel, three factors would combine to make menstruation very much rare, at least among married women. These were early marriages, probably soon after puberty and late wet weanings, perhaps at the age of two or three years old, and we now know that a lot of weanings didn't actually happen until four or five years old. And the desire for large families. The only women likely to be much affected by the law, Leviticus 15, or would be the unmarried teenage girls. Now, most of you already know because you've all gone through this, but for the sake of people listening to audio or whatever, that kind of stuff. Basically, when you're pregnant, you don't have a menstruation. And when you're weaning and breast, or when you're breastfeeding, you don't have a menstruation or, um, so, or period. And so the reality is, if you've got a little girl who's being married off by age of 14, 15 years old, and she's immediately going to start having kids, and they want large families, typically it was not uncommon for her to get pregnant, have a kid, nine months, and then she would breastfeed her kid for 
three, four, five years. Now that may seem really weird to us. I can't remember if I addressed this in another class, but but part of it is you have to remember when you live in a society where you're barely surviving because you're a farmer in an ancient culture and you don't have grocery stores and that kind of stuff, and you've got a free source of food for your child who is going to be incredibly lucky to make it to the age of 10 years old, heck yeah, you're going to breastfeed for a much longer period of time. So if you're not weaning them until four or five years old, and because you want a big family, and that's a big part of that culture, you're going to probably get pregnant immediately after that, the likelihood of having a regular um, period is going to be very rare, not like today, where we typically get married much later in life. We, most families have two or three kids at the most on average, and even that's becoming more rare, extremely rare for families to have more than one kid, uh, even to have a kid. And, and then you usually stop having kids at a young age because you only had one or two. And then you go the rest of your life until menopause. So the reality is they would suffer this a lot less. And so when you really think about it, no. Most of their life, they're not going to be declared unclean. And that's just the fact. So he goes on and says the relative frequency of their periods and the contagiousness of the uncleanness associated with the menstruation should have made any God-fearing young woman wary of physical contact with a girl he did not know well. For if he went to worship in an unclean condition, he was liable to God's judgment. And this way, these regulations may have promoted restraint and relations between the sexes and have acted as a break on the passions of young people. So here's the reality. The only people that are really going to be having a period on a regular basis is a unmarried girl who is more likely to have raging hormones. If a man who's got a sex drive is likely to be tempted to have sex with a woman before he's married to her, knows that if he does have sex with her, he's going to be declared unclean for the rest of the day. And if he has sex with her, um, and, then, and then she can't have sex one week out of every month, like that's like a father's dream. And if they go into the tabernacle, let's say, okay, I had sex, but I'm not going to tell mom and dad. Right? Or I'm not going to tell him that I'm on my menstruation cycle because I'm in the heat. If he goes in the tabernacle, he's unclean. Who knows he's unclean? And the wrath of God comes down on you. And we know the wrath of God on unclean people in the tabernacle is really severe. And if you just watch the two priests of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, get struck down by fire, you're probably going to be a little wary about, like, I don't want to go there. Now I'm trying to explain to mom and dad why you can't go to the tabernacle that day. The reality is that might actually put the brakes on a lot of sex drives. And even if you decide to have an affair, try to explain to your wife why you can't go to the tabernacle that day when you didn't have an encounter with each other. And so the reality is some of this actually makes sense in regulating their behavior. Because we all know how rampant sex is in every single culture and every generation throughout history. So what seems unfair and harsh on God's part, a lot of times when you begin to understand the culture, you realize, wow, this kind of makes sense. And maybe this isn't overly unrealistic and narrow-minded and harsh as what I thought it was either, because my life in America is drastically different than their life back then. 
And that's the important people. A lot of people, it is so notorious for people to throw at us. Your God is cruel, narrow-minded, harsh, bigoted, but they don't understand the culture. There's this woman who was actually a feminist, and she hated God and hated Paul and thought he was an, a, homos, a homophobic, narcissistic, anti-woman, sexist, male chauvinist pig. She got her PhD in the Roman culture. And once she understood the Roman culture, she realized that Paul was awesome. <laughs> that everything Paul was saying was exactly what she wanted in, as a feminist. Because once she understood the culture, and then she wrote a book called Paul Among His People, and she goes through and explains all the male chauvinist pig statements of Paul and the anti-homosexual statements and shows this is the kind of guy that we would want in our culture today if you just understood what he was dealing with. And I think that's incredible that this woman actually made it her agenda to attack the Bible as a feminist. Just once she, not even reading the Bible, she just study the culture. And all of a sudden, it was like, wow, that kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense. And then he became her hero. Because everything that he was saying, she now realized, was everything she was advocating as a feminist. And so you need to understand that one of the greatest witnessing techniques that we could have with those kind of people is to understand the culture of the time period. Know your word. Does it make sense? Yes. 